Welcome to The Curious Audience. I am your host, Luke Ryan. This week, we are back to our regular scheduled programming, back to our Wednesday hump day slot, which um, feels a little bit more comfortable. Um, a whole Sunday release for our Corona episode it just didn't, didn't really feel right. Um, but with coronavirus coming in and, and being the dominant issue, I couldn't release this podcast when it was originally supposed to come out. It just wouldn't have sat well with the climate of everything that was going on. And this this week's one is so um, enjoyable that I wanted to give it its due. So this week, I sat down with two of my good friends, Luke and Chris, who are both champion go-kart racers at the Indy 800 Butterfly Farm in Windsor. If you haven't been to that event, go down and check it out. It is a really fun time. Um, I take my three-year-old there and uh, listen out a little bit later on for a bit of audio where you hear him just wow as these go-karts go racing past. I wanted to talk to these guys because I'm not a car person. I can appreciate a really loud engine, I can appreciate a sleek looking car, but in terms of going fast and hitting the right corners and and watching car racing, I've never really been into that. And I wanted to learn more about uh, what it takes to be a, a, a race driver and where does that interest come from? And the answers surprised me a little bit. Um, this episode was particularly special to me because when I sat down to talk to these guys, um, my father had passed away three days earlier and my dad was a big car race lover. He watched Bathurst 1000, the V8 race cars. He watched anything and everything. And it was really quite enjoyable to take a step back from all the emotional stuff I'd been dealing with that week to talk to these guys about something that I knew my dad would have really gotten a kick out of. The one thing you'll notice with this um, interview is that the term uh, meet and round and event gets blurred together and it's very very frustrating as me as the interviewer I was sitting there going a meet is an event held on a day but they were thinking a meet was something completely different and then rounds got thrown in it you you'll notice my confusion and, and the cogs turning in my brain as I try to catch up but I get there in the end uh, another thing you'll notice with this one is you'll hear a little bit of bumping I'm really sorry for that. This is the first time that we use my brand new microphone set and it's still a work in progress. It's still getting used to it. And um, thank you so much to my listeners for enduring this as I upgrade my technology and try and develop a more uh, crisper, better quality sound for your ears. Um, I know it can't be enjoyable as you're walking along or, or at work or wherever it is you listen to the curious audience, but I really appreciate you sticking with us until we, we find that that uh, perfect sound for us. Um, so let's get to it. After this little break, you'll hear from Luke, Chris, and myself talking all things go-karting and car racing. wandering all over the track. Yeah, well, the son of a bitch just slammed into me. No, he didn't slam into you. He didn't bump you. He didn't nudge you. He rubbed you. And rubbing son is racing. We're coming up to the beginning of the year. 
2020, the brand new season's about to start. What do you need to do to get yourself ready? Well, ideally you would have started your prep after the last round last year because you would have, you, you've already got it in your head. For instance, I finished sixth in the championship last year. Obviously I want to go five places better this year. <laughs> but um, so in your head anyway, you're, you're already thinking, what am I going to go differently for next year? Am I going to buy something, buy a newer go-kart? I'm going to buy a new engine. What can I do? What can I do to go quicker basically? Mm-hmm. And yeah. So ideally, you'd do a full summer of testing, things like that. But in my <laughs> case for this year, we've, I've, I've done a bit of work on it and all that, okay. but haven't, obviously, karting in general comes down to budget. I'm just ha- looking at Chris's face and I'm thinking <laughs> he's he now panicked because he hasn't done any of these things. <laughs> Me, uh, yeah. I've got no budget for this year. <laughs> um, I'm actually going to be stepping aside for this year. I've got a new baby coming along and things and the cost of running the cart for the year just didn't quite factor in for this year. Which is very foolish because he's coming off his best year. I his wife's on. getting stuck into him about not racing. Yeah. And <laughs> usually it's the other way around. Look, um, you know, off the back of last year, I think I had a really good year. Got driver of the year in four stroke for the championship. Um, there is some changes in money I need to spend on the cart, which I think over the year I'll actually prep the car for next year so um we'll be going to a change in the rear axles and set up and things making the car handle a bit better and trying to get a bit more speed out of it um but yeah the main thing is after the last year coming into the next year is i think you got to get your mindset right so i always go back and look at old video footage and current races formula one and other motorsports as well and just sort of psych myself up on like the adrenaline and the, yeah. the thought process of what you put through. So what place did you get in 2019? Uh, finished second in the championship okay. overall. Um, which I was second after three rounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We sort of tailed off. Where, where were we after eight rounds yeah, though was the problem? <laughs> um, yeah, we tailed off a bit. I think I had some reliability issues through the year. Um, inconsistencies I only managed to actually start six of the eight rounds I only finished five of the six rounds I started Wow! Um, but races which I did compete in and finish I did extremely well in um, I picked up my first first place trophy this year um, pretty early on I was pretty happy nice. with that picked up a couple of seconds and thirds throughout the year so and as a driver you came along so much between the start of the year and the end of the year. Yeah. So So is there anything you can attribute that to? Um, yeah, it's just seat time is what is the main thing is time in the driver's seat, putting laps in. And more practice. More practice. Um, just turning laps really over the last couple of years I've been working on it. That's why I'm on his back. He can't have a year <laughs> out. He's got I'm gonna get him racing. He'll be racing this uh, year. I might do one or two. I've got your wife on side. So. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I can't see myself like absolutely, like I can't commit to a full eight round championship this year. Um, I'll probably do a couple of rounds. I'll probably do a few practice days. But yeah, as for this year's championship, I don't think I'll be in contention for it. If someone comes into go-karting and they have a bottomless pit of money. Yeah. For someone who just has a moderate amount of money, they're, they're yeah. doing it as a hobby. Yeah. 
do you have is there a competition still there or is it yeah. the person with the deepest pockets is first we've got guys out there spending thirty, forty thousand dollars a year just to run eight rounds at a club track wow so how do you compete with something like that um, is there a competition with there something? is a competition um i think that when you spend that stupid amount of money you are going to get results mm-hmm. and it makes you very competitive but for the guys who aren't spending that stupid amount of money they're still very competitive they might not be the last 10 tenths of a second off the back of the guy who's got all that money and can get everything out of his car but the competition through the rest of the field has been extremely tight um, and there's some very good close racing from uh, between what, 20 guys. That, yeah. I think in terms of the butterfly farm, if you're, if you're someone our age, looking to mid-30s, looking to get in and have a go, you, you're probably not... Obviously, you want to do as well as you can, mm. but winning's not the be-all and end-all if you were just starting out now. It's... You, it's not a yeah. It's not a cheap hobby. No, yeah. no. Um, if you're stuck, you could get in at around five grand. Okay. But then your running costs from there aren't too bad. Obviously, the more competitive you want to be, you start spending more money. But then once you once you're in, sort of you know if you get a bit more money, upgrade this. You might save up and decide. All right, I'm going to sell off that and buy buy a better go kart. So if you've got, say you bought your go-kart and you've got it all set out with your engine and all the different parts, what's your ongoing cost to be competitive? Um, like week to week, what, the, are you, what are you spending? You've got it all? Tyres is the most expensive yeah. point. Yeah. Then um, you're looking at... That, that was pretty much the first lesson I learned. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, a good set of tyres. And, then, and um, the, the guys at the front, particularly in two-stroke tag heavy, mm-hmm. the tag heavy series, the yeah. butterfly farm, there's guys on new tyres every round. And if you want to win... Wow. You've got to stump up 235 bucks per round for a set of tyres. So tyres yeah. is one of the big ongoing costs. Yeah, yeah. tyres yeah. is the is the, the, is the mm. thing. And it's, uh, in many cases, it's a bit of a bugbear among, amongst a lot of people. Because, mm. um, I mean, a set of go-kart tyres, like they won't, they're, they're not going to delaminate or anything if you use them for three or four race meetings. Yeah. It's, and a lot of the times the tire, a new set of tires are only better than an old set of tires really for maybe qualifying in the first heat of the day. Then sort of, there's not a lot in between them. Mm. But people want the new set of tires to qualify up the front because then but Butterfly Farm's a tight, twisty track and you can pass, but it, it's you've got, to, you've got to work to make an overtake. Like so if you've, got, if you've got track position at the front, mm. you're going to... That's if you can qualify up the front, you're set up for the whole day. Mm. How would you feel if they put a, a rule in at Butterfly Farm where you had one set of tyres per meet? It has been tried. It's been tried up at Lithgow. Um, per meet that, is actually where it's at. It's, it's like so per round, on a round, you've got four races in the day plus you're qualifying. You have to do the whole day on the one set of tyres. Now, if you're not going to be at the front and competitive, a set of tyres can last two to three rounds. But if you want to be competitive, then it's a tyre, a set of tyres every round. Mm. If they had a rule that said, say, you have to use the same set of tyres for the first round and the second round, and then the third, a new set for the third round, use that for the fourth round. If guys are doing all the rounds, that can work perfect. Yeah. But it's, yeah. me and Chris might commit to the full season. So we, we do the first round on our new tyres, we're on the second round on yeah. the, the same set of tyres, but you might rock up at round two with a brand new set of tyres. 
Oh, okay. So of the five races in a day, people don't have to do all of them. Oh, no, like yeah. round two. So you might show up. Oh, you're talking about the next month. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So, so, so yeah. You, you have to use the same set of tyres for the whole day. Oh, okay. That rule yeah. already. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what I'm yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so people say there's eight different round. So there's a meeting in March, meeting in April, meeting in May. Yeah. So the, you've got to use the same tyres for the, that whole day, okay. the four races on that whole day. But though your set of tyres theoretically can last three or four days, different, days, different events, different, events. different rounds. Yeah, okay. yeah. But so that so Lithgow, the Lithgow Club Championship, they have tried a rule where whatever tyres you used at the first event, next month you then have to use the same set of tyres. Mm, that's a hard but thing to track, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, they, they did work out a system where they had a, I think it was a phone app or something, and it scanned the barcode of the tyres. Okay. But the, the problem is, yeah, if, if, say, me and Chris commit to the full season, we do the March event on our set of tyres, we do the April event on the same set of tyres, but you just show up for the April event. Yeah, I've got better tyres. You've got you? better tyres. Yeah. So, I mean, you either need a core, a big core of people to commit to the full season. Mm. That's the only way it'll work. Otherwise, if, if 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 there's only a core of three or four people that want to do every round, you might end up the championships. But by the end of the end of the year, when they're doing races on their second set of tyres mm. or events on their second set of tyres, the championship battle might be between guys who are running around in sixth or seventh place because all these other guys who show up willy nilly. So someone someone will find a way to get around it to give them the advantage. Oh. I don't think you can police it. I think, unfortunately, motor racing is expensive and tyres are a big part of it. And that's just the cost you look at per day. There's there's nothing you can, especially for a club championship where people come and go throughout the year. Some people might, for family commitments or whatever, might have to miss an event. Okay. There's, yeah, you really, you you can't. And really, at the end of the day, if someone wants to spend a massive amount of money to win a club championship, Mm. then. That's that. That's 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 their their prerogative. At the end of the day, you can only do your best with what you got and what you you can afford. And there is a core good guys at the Butterfly Farm in Tag Heavy, that in our two stroke class, there's there's nine or ten of us, and I mean we rock up every round, and you just do the best with what you got, and ever ever everyone has a good time. There's a few other people who come and go and. Yeah. want to spend up big but yeah that's so when you go to the events you mentioned coming first isn't isn't really the focal point for you what what do you what do you look at at the end of a good day or a good round what what makes that a good round for you is it coming first or it is the focal point oh, okay <laughs> but yeah. it, it, it it depends how i mean i had a few years where i went really well and you, you turn up and you know you've got a good go-kart, you know you're competitive. I mean, the idea is to have fun. Mm. There's no, it, I, I've always said, with the group of guys we race with the Butterfly Farm, I'd rather, I'd rather show up, hang out with all the guys all day, because we, we turn up, yeah, and we've seven, got... eight o'clock in the morning, and we just talk car racing all day. <laughs> with the, these core guys at the Butterfly, we just talk car racing all day. Turn up. Have you? What's happening in Formula One? What's happening in rallying? What's What's happening in karting? We talk. We talk about everything. It's just 
that all day. And I'd rather finish fifth and have a day talking about that than rock up by myself, pit by myself, race around all day and finish second. Obviously, I'd rather talk racing all day and finish first. Mm. And if, if you're going well, which I had a good patch over a few years, you turn up and on your mind is winning. You're like, I've got a chance to win today. If I do my best, I should be able to win. And it doesn't always happen that way, but you might do your best. But also, if I do my best and finish fourth, that's that's all I could do. But you go home a bit disappointed. Oh, what have I got to do to get... Okay, to get so you've there. got that competitive... On the flip side of the coin, I ran at the back of the pack for quite a few years, and I found that the most memorable and funnest days I've ever had in a car, sort of... I've already lost the championship. I'm at the end of the year. I'm coming in the last round. And I'm just out to have some fun. And basically, just getting in the cart and have some nice close racing with someone on the track. Mm. Changing places. Just each person giving it their all and just having a lot of fun. You know, oh, they got me on this one. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then I managed to get them on the next corner and yeah. make up paces. And that really tight racing. And I think there's a lot of... There's a lot of fun and excitement that can actually happen at the back of the pack that can be just as fun or exciting. I've won races now and I've I had a lot more fun mid-pack battling mm. than I did driving for 10 laps out in front of everyone, worrying about who's going to overtake me. Yeah. I think in mid-race, it's a lot more fun to be chasing someone and actually get that position. Um, so you, what about you've you? got to remember it's a hobby. Yeah. And we spend... Comparatively, we spend a lot, still spend a lot of money on it, and you spend a lot of time prepping and getting things ready. If you, you've got to be having fun, mm. and if you get to the end of the day and the best you've done is fifth, for instance, as I said, I tailed off at the end of last year. Obviously, I would like to have gone better, but I still got to the end of the day. I'd spent the day racing amongst racing people, mm. did the best I could. If I finished seventh, sixth, then you go home. You get you go home saying if you go home thinking, "Oh, can I do better next time?" Then I think that's that. You know, you've had a good day. You've still got the fire burning to do well. And if you have a day racing, it's never a bad day. So you mentioned that you talk a lot about motorsport. That's one big part of the social community you've got down there. Yeah. Yeah. I. Imagine both of you are big fans of motorsport. You've just said Formula One and, and yeah. the other ones. How did you get into your love of cars and racing? Well, I can put mine back to... Put that back to my uncle and, and my dad. So I came from sort of a racing family in as much as... My uncle was a big fan of motorsport when I was a kid. You know, my, my I wasn't watching cartoons... My, my uncle would have, um, he had a big collection of videotapes and he was always into cars. So my first memories of life are watching old World Rally Championship videos and from the early mid 80s. And my, my dad had an interest as well. He was into bikes and he was into, you know, he'd always watch Bathurst and all the touring car championship rounds on TV. And right from a kid, I was writing, there's a, there's a photo of me sitting in front when I was two years old watching the 1985 Sandown 500. <laughs> and... Just, that's all I watched as a kid. As I said, yeah. if my parents wanted wanted to entertain me, or, there was no cartoons or anything. It was just, it was car racing. Uh, my first memory of Formula One is the 1988 Australian Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. That's how I became a bit of a Gerhard Berger fan, an Austrian playboy okay. in, the, uh, in Formula One because 
it's one of my first, pretty much my first memory of motor racing is watching him in the 1988 Australian Grand Prix and tearing off in the Ferrari and leading the early stages he got taken out. Okay. But um, yeah, and then and I remember Bathurst from a kid sitting next to my dad watching, uh, yeah, Bathurst as a young kid and before long dad, dad had handed over the taping duties of Bathurst every year to me. So <laughs> it was my job to sit there and take the ads out and you know, a Sunday night when I was in primary school, dad had, they put me to bed and dad had tapped me on the shoulder and goes, a Formula One race on tonight, I'll tape it for you. And then I'd, next afternoon, rush home from school, first thing I did was put the tape in and watch it. And wow. So that's how, that's how I was into it. I've been a fan since I was, since all I can remember. I want to come back to the Bathurst taping movie. Yeah. Chris, how did you get into it? Um, my passion started more with just cars, more than actual racing. Um, my earliest memory has been four or five, and my dad hanging around having a few beers, talking to his mates about cars. And they're talking like VH Commodores and like different letter combinations referencing cars. I'm like, what do these letters mean? What are these cars? I don't know all these cars. And I just wanted to learn about the cars. Um, and then as I got older, it's just, I just got a really strong passion for cars. My dad always said, like, cars he's working on in the backyard and whatnot, and I'm still the same now. I've got three cars in the backyard I'm working <laughs> on, a couple of motorbikes, whatnot. Um, and it's just like, and then there was also, like, it's not until sort of the early 90s where I started to get into motorsport and start watching, like, the V8s what was Group A and Group C back in the day? Proper, proper touring cars. Proper touring cars. <laughs> and then um, I've got a big love and passion for Dick Johnson Racing um, and the Fords. And then the AUs come around and I've got like big fan of John Bow and a few other drivers that come up through the ranks at the time. Glenn Seaton was another good one. And um, <clears throat> so it's sort of motorsport something I sort of really got into when I was sort of in my teen years, early 20s, late teens. Um, followed that for a long time. Um, always kind of wanted to get into motorsport, but never had any opportunity to be able to get into any form of it. Um, and then Luke started racing go-karts and then started nagging me, going, Chris, come on, get a couple of grand together, get a car, come race with us. Just come out, do some practice days. For six years, he was nagging me. <laughs> Then, work, then my work finally paid for a hire cart session at Eastern Creek. Went down and did the hire carts and went, oh, I really got to get into this. <laughs> and it's like, then two months later, we went and did another hire cart session. Two weeks later, I had a cart. And then um, I bought my first go-kart for about two grand. I said, Luke, that's it. I'm racing it next round. And he's like, we told him he only just bought the cart. We're going to do a practice day first. I'm like, okay. So we went down to the track on the <laughs> yeah. Friday before the race. Yeah. He bought yeah. it on the Wednesday. The race meeting was that Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> he was just yeah. I was just like, oh, the race on the Saturday. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it out to the track on the Friday. We'll do some practice. Yeah. It's like, yeah, all right. So he came down with us and we went down. I turned about 10 laps, if that. I'm going, yeah, I'm good. And he's like, we need you good. I'm like, no, we're good to race. The next day, we rock up, go to the race. And then... Uh, it was actually a great finisher to that day because, uh, you know, I was getting lapped by Luke all day long. Uh, first time here. <laughs> and then the finisher, the last lap, last race of the day. And I'm coming down to the finish line. I don't think there's anyone next, anywhere near me. Next thing, Luke appears right next to me on my left-hand side. 
scared the shit out of me. So <laughs> I just reefed the wheel to the right and hit the brakes to pull away from him because I just didn't expect him to be there or that close. Yeah. Well, I put myself into a spin and parked it underneath the chicken flag. Oh, well, I, I can do my version of that. It was that was a good day. I'd won the, I'd won the three heats and we're in the final. Yeah, I had a good friend of ours, Anthony Vella, on my tail for that whole the whole twelve lap final, and we're coming around, and I'd caught Chris in almost one of the worst places. Coming, it was coming onto the out of the last corner onto the straight, and um, it was one of those where it was going to be a drag race to the line between me and Anthony. He'd been okay. all over me. I held him off, and the last thing you want to do is get balked on the run of the line. <laughs> And I'd come across and Chris had sort of drifted over to the right and I'd been like, I, I can't back off. I just had, I just kept the foot flat, went to the left, just kept it in. And then I saw Chris easing back to the left over on me and I, <laughs> one of the, well, there's the odd moment when you just think, bugger it, I have to, whatever happens, I'm keeping the foot in. Mm-hmm. So I just kept the foot in, Chris pulled away, I got to the line, won the, won the race. Chris was okay. Yeah, <laughs> Had a scare. He was like, he got a scare out of the way early. I don't think um, I was scared. It was more embarrassed when I looked up <laughs> the flag. He's laughing at me. <laughs> so did you realise he'd spun out when you passed him? No. no, no, no I, I got, got to the line. Got to the line in first. Anthony had just gotten alongside me, mm. so it was a very, very close finish. Anthony and might have seen I mean, I was, back, I was back in the pit celebrating by the time uh, yeah. Chris trundled in and uh, said, I had a lose. So why why go karts? So Luke, you're the first one who got to go karts, and you brought Chris along. Yeah. Why why did you choose go karts as as your entry into participating in motorsport? Well, I for many years I wanted to get into car racing, but just never had the money. And I I knew what go I knew what go karts were. I'd seen it, but now I mean I consider myself a bit of a student of motorsport, yeah. but. Go karts had always just oh you know I knew people that you know you could do hire carts guys our age would do hire carts and everything but I didn't know there was really a racing scene for anyone over about sixteen or seventeen mm. I thought maybe people did it but it wasn't that popular I thought you know you, you did your go karts as a kid and then you moved on into cars so a friend of ours Hayden Fryer was having his would have been his twenty sixth birthday and we were just out at the pub. And I got chatting to one of his friends, Brendan Collins. And just amongst our chat, he comes up and mentions, oh, we, um, I race go-karts out on the Butterfly Farm. And I'll, oh, what do you race there? And he just got, got talking, told me all about it, said it was you know, a competitive, competitive field out there and a lot of guys our age race and they get good grids and it's a lot of fun. So went back and had a think about it and then got chatting to my youngest brother, Adam. And because you know, our whole family is car racing mm-hmm. into it, I just mentioned, oh, you know, um, I was talking to a guy at this pub ring at the weekend. He thinks there's a lot of there's a good crowd out of the butterfly farm. And Adam said, oh, look, leave me with it. I'll have a bit, you know, I'll have a look around. And a couple of days later, he tells me that um, a guy, one of his truck drivers who he works with, um, had two go karts just sitting around, engines, everything ready to go, and they're ours if we want them. Nice. So, okay, we're in straight away. How do you know as racers where you can push, how far you can push your go-kart? And have you pushed it too far and gone over the line and... and I try to every round. (laughs) Um, Look, spinning is just, 
Uh, especially when you first start out and you try and do it really cheap because you don't want to put stupid money into something you don't know how you're going to go with it initially. Yeah. Um, I know my first two, three years, I was just using Luke's second-hand tires. So he'd put two rounds on each of his sets of tires. Sometimes only one. Sometimes only one, if I was lucky. <laughs> because then I'd get his tires and then I'd go and put you know, another two or three rounds on that them set of tires. Now, here's the thing. With tires, it's they wear out for grip with heat cycles, not tread. So they might still be, when you're finished, 90% tread on the tire, but there's no grip left in the tires, and that's what's worn out tire for us. Um, so basically I'm getting tires off loop that have got 90% grip, uh, 90% tread, but zero grip in them. Mm-hmm. And then I'm trying to go and race against the guys which know what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> I regularly spin out. I had a thing where every single round, I'd spin out at least once during the day, at least. And um, the thing is, I just keep driving until I spun. You know, there's mm-hmm. like, where's the limit? Well, you know where the limit is when you spin. Before that, you're not at the limit yet, so keep trying. <laughs> so you had to, you were quite comfortable pushing beyond the limit to then find it. I had to. Yeah. Um, if I'm going that much slower than everyone else, I need to keep pushing to be able to try and keep up to everyone else. And the only way I can get there is pushing the car beyond its limits. How did you get used to a loss of control? Um, it's a I lot imagine of fun, the man. first time it would have been quite unnerving. Actually, no, I, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> it's, it's, like um, I mentioned earlier about like my first round, which was only the day after a, a, my practice day. Now on practice day, I maybe spun two or three times and then on the race though I spun at least once in every single heat that day um, I spun twice in practice mm, and at least baptism by fire <laughs> jump in drive the thing if you spin you spin and it's, I actually got to the point where I'd be in the middle of a spin and I'd be like I'm not going to touch the brake I'm going to play with the throttle see what that does you know and just I just when I've got no grip and I'm spinning out on corners and when you spin you end up going to the outside of the track which is off the racing line which is always safer mm-hmm. which always helps a little bit it means the car behind you isn't going to come crashing into you if they stick to the racing line um, and so while I'm spinning it feels like forever when you're in a cart before you come to a complete stop and you just like there's all this time to sort of sit there and think oh what can I do to play with this to try and make this even better or worse to see what and I just learned my cart control through the cart being completely out of control and so when you do spin we're talking about it and and, I mean I'm imagining you're just spinning an open track and you said moving on to the off have you spun and actually connected with anything a racer or a a obstacle on the track I've you know, because you're not out there on your own. Yeah, no, I, I think the biggest danger is once you come to a complete stop. I've had actually incidents where the very first corner on the track we raced at is a blind corner. Mm. And I've actually spun in the middle of that corner and ended up facing the wrong way on the exit of the corner on a blind corner. So someone's coming down the straight and they're doing 70 kilometers an hour, turning into a corner. They're traveling still at 60, 65 through the corner and they're in the middle of the corner before they even see me on the exit. And so they're doing 60 kilometers an hour and then I'm on the exit right in the middle of their lane, facing the wrong way, looking straight at them. That was one of the biggest moments for me. And um, as a result, three guys come around that corner, 
three of them spun out because <laughs> trying to avoid me in the bad location that I was in. Um, were they successful? You didn't get hit? I didn't get hit, but okay. then they were very unsuccessful <laughs> the rest of their race day because yeah. then all of us had to then get our carts back onto the track facing the right way and get going again. And you end up, a lap's only 41 to 44 seconds is a lap time. Mm. It's sort of That's sort of the window for a good lap around that track, depending on your class and what you're doing. What happens is when we spin out and then have to get ourselves going, we can lose 20 seconds. That's half a lap that you end up down because of an incident as simple as, mm-hmm. oh, I spun, now I've got to get going again. And then you've got to recover from that. You've got to recover and then you've got to try and catch up to back to the rest of everyone. And So because there's a lot of passion in the motor racing and, and a lot of these guys like you guys have put their money in, their extra luxury money, yeah. when they get off the track, they've gotten out of their carts after an event like yeah. like them spinning out to avoid you. What's what's the energy like? What's the emotion like? Do they come up to you and have a go or are they no, understanding that's just part of depends it? On the, depends on the incident. Depends what's happened. I mean, you, you get the odd hot head if there's been a bit of a yeah. couple of... If someone feels like they've been punted off or if they've... If somebody has a spin, the person behind runs over it, you know, clips them and damages it. I mean, that's just a racing incident. That's the risk you take when you, when you, when you, when you go out onto the track, mm. you, 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 you take, you take it on board that you, you could damage something. Um, and you've got to wear the cost ultimately. I mean, I've, I've been run into and had stuff of mine damaged. I have run into people and damaged stuff, stuff of parts of theirs. Um, it's people, I think, if you've been, you you learn to know the guys who are more prone to having a crash, or and you you also <laughs> Chris just put his hand up. <laughs> but you, I mean, you, you also you also know you, you know the guys who haven't intentionally done something, or so if if it's someone who you've raced with a long time, you're going to have the odd touch, especially if you're racing the same guys month after month, year after year, you're going to have things happen. So Chris talked about when he first spun out. Do you, do you recall the first time you pushed your cart too far, or, or have you had accidents where you you realised that you just went too you pushed your cart too far? Yeah, yeah off, uh, my biggest crash would be at uh, Eastern Creek. Just coming onto the front straight, there was I was going under it, going up the inside of a guy, and he sort of came across on me. I mean, look, if you ask him, I dived up the inside late. If you ask me, he turned in on me. So, racing accident. Um, but yeah, I got up on the curb, got up on two wheels after touching him, and um, it th- I rolled over. I got thrown out. And yeah, that's that's probably that's probably the the, the scariest thing that's happened to me in a, in a in a go kart. How quick did you get back onto the go kart once you recovered? Um, well, I, I had about a month out because I hurt my knee in the crash. Um, but hop back in and yeah. you, you, you know I knew in my head what what had happened and I just straight back I couldn't wait to get back in the first thing you want to do is get back in and I think it made me that crash I think made me a better driver made me a, a more thinking driver did it make you change the safety precautions that you possibly took like well, and that made me think about wearing knee pads because I <laughs> sort, of, sort of because in, while I was commando rolling off the track, um, 
it, it cut my cut my uh, driving suit open and um, it cut my knee open. And um, but probably the best safety feature I went for would, would have been a neck brace, and that traced back actually to the previous year when I I. I'd seen some people racing with neck braces, mainly in the kids' ranks, but the, the odd you'd see the odd senior racing with with a neck brace, and I thought oh, I probably should get one. And then we had a race meeting at the Butterfly Farm that year, and there was a really big crash where a guy went up over over someone, mm. went into the fence, got thrown out. That uh, he was on the ground. They called the ambulance. Said he was um, said he was feeling pins and needles in his arms and legs, and delayed the race meeting. And um, I mean, I was up to second in that race as well before they red flagged it. But um, <clears throat> they so it got red flagged. Anyway, I heard from the guy later on, and he said one of the things he said was he said that he'd um, have to he'd, he'd have to buy a neck brace. He said, you know, because he, he sort of didn't, didn't, it didn't hurt his neck, but he, you know, he pulled the muscles and he did something to it. Mm. And so I, that, I thought to myself, well, maybe this is a sign. So I went out straight after that and that week spent $500 on a neck brace and I'll never race without one again. But hardly anyone races with one. You see the odd couple yeah. of people racing with it, but 90% of a senior go-karting field doesn't run with a neck brace. And I mean, I wouldn't. You don't. I don't even know it's there now. And I, I, I would. Yeah, yeah. It's just um, that um, but all the other risks I'm willing to accept. Well, with your first race meet coming up, we want to wish you the best of luck coming up, and we'll we'll be down on the track taking a few photos anyway. But <laughs> um, the thing that we ask all our guests, because our whole podcast is about how movies mirror reality and i was wondering what movie do you think of when you're driving around the track what movie kind of reflects your reality of motorsport and, and go-kart racing well i think in my case i you know i'm a bit bit old school racer and i i um yeah love love the olden days of racing and that so it'd be a movie like le mans with uh, steve mcqueen or uh the john frankenheimer movie um grand prix with james garner so what is it about those two films that really seem to you? Just the, I think both of them, they cover sort of the the thrill of racing, reflect the thrill of it, the danger of it, the the psyche of a racing driver. You know what what it means, mm. what it what it means to people. And although what we do, it, it's fun. It's it's we it's not professional motor racing. It's um, but in basically it's our Formula One like. You know, most of, we're not going to go higher in motorsport. This is as far as we'll, you know, go-karting is as far as we'll get in racing. And I think, you know, we, um, you know, and in between race meetings, race events, we're thinking about the next one. We're thinking about what, you know, what we can do, what's going to happen. And, you know, our motor racing, watching motor racing and everything sort of consumes us a lot. And I think those films... Both those films sort of, yeah, they reflect the danger, the thrill, the agony of a bad result. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a good there's a good line, well, not that there's many lines in Le Mans with Steve McQueen, <laughs> but uh, there, there's a line in the movie when Steve, Steve McQueen's character is talking to the widow of, uh, of a driver who'd been killed in the movie the previous year. And he goes, 
she's she sort of asked you know well why do you do it and he just goes um he goes racing it's life everything before or after is just waiting Mm, that's an interesting way to look at it what about you chris what movie do you kind of think of? i sort of lean towards more um days of thunder and also Teledega nights which is sort of the parody of days of thunder (laughs) (laughs) but like john c riley was in both of them (laughs) well like I'll, one of my favourite quotes is from Tom Cruise in Days of Thunder is, you know, robbing me is racing. <laughs> no, I was having, actually, no, sorry, no, it was, no, no. It was uh, the chief, crew chief said that. Sorry. And, um, and also, <laughs> I just love shake and bake. <laughs> I think both of those films kind of really deal with the, the swapping positions and that real kind of challenge that you talk the about racing. in the centre part, especially I, shake and bake, that yeah. combination of, of them tackling the... Um, the whole lineup. I, I like, <laughs> like sometimes I'm like on a practice day or I mean I do practice in the morning and qualifying that and you got some dead laps where you just turn around and driving yourself or I might I've got no traffic around me on track and I'm in the middle of a race yeah. 10 laps in and I'll just be sitting there going give myself my own commentary you know <laughs> it's like come on Chris oh you got this you're coming in the corner yes and then Chris is coming up the street and I'll just be talking to myself ranting whatnot and having some fun with it and um but yeah the sort of like the, the commentary and stuff that you get sort of from Teledega Nights and that I kind of relate a lot too but well guys I want to thank you both for for chatting with me about go-karts and Chris we hope you're on the track soon yeah and Luke best of luck for 2020 season thank you we'll be going out having a go and see what happens having fun anyway no matter what Hello, it's me, Luke Ryan, again, and it's just me this week. Getting Meredith to talk about car racing films is an impossible thing to do, and we have four fantastic films to have a quick look at this week. So, just being me, I'm not going to keep you long. Let's start off with Luke's two films. He said, Grand Prix from the 1996 film, winner of three Oscars, was one of his picks, as well as Le Mans, or Le Mans starring Steve McQueen. Now, Grand Prix was an amazing film. It's something you really need to watch. You would not believe that this film was shot in 1966. The camera angles that they take, the different green screens that they use, you can tell a little bit, but it is really, really captivating. And the sound of the cars is phenomenal. You can truly understand why they got an Oscar for sound editing. I don't have a sound bar on my TV, but if you do, please let me know how amazing the sound of these cars are, because I could feel it just off the standard TV. The one thing I will say about Grand Prix is some of the crash scenes, oh, the dummies, the crash test dummies that they used, it was just like someone just threw it up in the air and it just landed wherever it could. Um, There's one that ends up in the water, there's one that ends up in a tree, it's... I mean, maybe in 1966 it made a little bit more sense, but in in this current 2020, um, it was really easy to pick and really um, took away from the powerful moment that should have been happening. But I can see why Luke picked that film, and it's quite incredible to think that people actually drove around in that style of cars 
You know, you barely have any sort of protection for the speed that you're going at. The second film that Luke mentioned was actually a film that he quoted during our interview. So let's have a quick look at that moment and discuss. What is so important about driving faster than anyone else? A lot of people go through life doing things badly. Racing's important to men who do it well. When you're racing, it's, it's life. Anything that happens before or after, it's just waiting. So, Le Mans was released in 1971. Um, an interesting fact, Steve McQueen was actually supposed to be in the leading role of Grand Prix, but um, complications occurred with that. He didn't get on with the um, production team, and so he was replaced by James Garner, and later on he did a film on the, of his own called Le Mans. Le Mans is such an interesting race, and we've just seen it represented in Ford versus Ferrari at the previous uh, 2019 Oscars. Or is it 2020? No, 2019 Oscars. The thing about Le Mans that strikes me is how did they get to a point where they wanted to do 24 hours? You know, we've seen races that last for, you know, a couple of hours, six hours, eight hours, but 24 hours seems like a massive endurance. I did a little bit of research, and if I'm correct, and I'm sure Luke and Chris will will <laughs> comment if I'm not, uh, Le Mans has been going since 1923, Le Mans is a very different sort of race where a lot of races designed to challenge the skills of the driver and the performance of the car. Le Mans adds an extra uh, um, difficulty to it. Not only does your car have to be fast, but it has to endure the full time limit. And that kind of links in with what Luke and Chris were talking about with their go-karts and being able to ensure that your tires last and that you're not pushing your cart too hard because, you know, of those four or five races you've got to do at an event, those tires have to last. And you want to make sure that you get the best result out of all of them. And that is so similar with Le Mans. You want to make sure that you're not pushing your car too far. You're pushing it just enough. And it really takes... I mean, you saw this in Ford and Ferrari. It takes a driver who really understands the mechanics of the car, can sit in there and feel it and go, you know, this car sometimes has a little bit more to push. I can push it a bit further now. Oh, it's getting too hot. I need to cool it down. And so it adds that extra element. So you're really getting that driver, mechanic, and precision machine. Uh, which is very different to a lot of races that we see nowadays where the driver really has not much concept of what's going on under the bonnet. You know, you look at something like Formula One, I wonder how much the drivers actually know about what's going on under the bonnet. Now, this leads me into the two films that Chris selected. Our first one was Days of Thunder, and you heard a little clip of that at the very beginning of the podcast, and I'm going to play you one more clip now. I got a pit. I don't think so. We're busy now. You're what? Yeah. Eating ice cream. Ice cream? Give me some of Give me, give me some of 
Now you're welcome to come on and get one, but I don't believe NASCAR would think much of you trying to eat an ice cream cone out there. You have enough trouble riding around the track as it is. Now, Days of Thunder. Released in 1990, it starred Robert Duvall and Tom Cruise, and it really encapsulated that kind of 1980s feel movie, even though it was right at the end of the 1980s. You obviously understood that production occurred during the 80s, but it was an intriguing film and something that I probably should have watched when it was released but never saw it. Uh, In the space of about the first 45 minutes, we see kind of a complete arc for Tom Cruise's character, Cole. He comes into it not knowing how to really negotiate the car. He, he has some natural talent. And then we see Robert Duvall's character as the, the pit crew leader. <laughs> I'm sure Luke and Chris will tell me the official name. <laughs> um, try, try and break down those barriers that he has. Try and teach him how to use the car, how to preserve the tyres and things like that. And they have a big win together within the first 45 minutes. It's really kind of bizarre because you get to that win mark and you say, oh, great, you know, we've solved the problem. That was that was a pretty good arc. I can walk away from this film now, you know. Um, but it continues on. It delves into um, the injuries that drivers can deal with, the post-traumatic post, the post stress that they can sometimes deal with. Um it goes back into the racing and teaching him how to drive a lot more. The one thing I will say about Days of Thunder in terms of the storyline is they tried to introduce too many competitors for our main lead of Thomas Cruise, uh, Tom Cruise. Um, initially, we had uh, an older guy at the beginning. I can't remember his name. Um, but he was the villain who Tom would keep... Uh, going back and forth with eventually they became friends and this new villain came along later on and it was very clear they wanted us to know this guy was the villain but we really knew nothing about him except his name which I've forgotten of course and his face we we didn't know why he had it in for Tom Cruise's character um, but he was determined to make sure he didn't win and various disasters occur before that. I, I wish they had taken a little bit of time away from the whole Tom and Nicole romance, and yes, Nicole Kidman's in this film, and delve more into that. It, w- it would have been really, really entertaining. The interesting thing about Days of Thunder is it's one of those films where they had a blank checkbook to make this film. The budget for this just went up and up and up, and... It was probably because of this film where a lot of films previous uh, uh, following this had um, very restrictive budgets. You had to be as close as you can to the dollar amount that the movie theaters were, not the movie theaters, the production theaters were paying because this film just went above and beyond. And you can see that in parts of it where the car scenes are just so realistic and so fantastic and the crowds my gosh, the crowds that they have to this event. I've never seen anything like it. It was really incredible. Now, I said Tom Cruise, I said Robert Duvall, but the one that I forgot to mention, or didn't forget, I left it for now, was John C. Riley. 
Can you believe John C. Riley was in this film as a young guy working in the pits? And the reason why I left it to now is because John C. Riley is the perfect lead-in to the final film that we're going to be talking about, which is kind of a parody of all these racing films. It's Will Farrell and John C. Riley at Talladega Nights. Now, I don't have any clips for you, but you probably know all the lines, things like, shake and bake, that just happened, um, I want to go fast. Yep, I tried to do a little accent there, I, I apologize. In this film, you really get to see, even throughout all the, the jokes and the silliness and <laughs> driving a car with a cougar in it, you get to see that, that driving really matters, and there's something about the, the makeup of... Uh, a driver's brain that not only enables them to make decisions under this fast-paced, high-octane, high-stress environment, but they actually thrive in it. And I found that really interesting, and it's uh, leading me down a path of, of continued reading where I want to learn more about what it is in the genetic makeup or in the brain development um, that makes a racer a racer. So um, it's made me a little bit curious. I hope it's made you a bit curious too. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Curious Audience. I really hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, put a comment up there or jump onto our Anchor website link and you can even leave a phone message, which I will definitely play in our upcoming podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and hold on to next week. It's going to be a ripper. Days of Thunder was produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Brockheimer for Paramount Pictures with music by Hans Zimmer. Le Mans was produced by Jack N. Reddish for Cinema Centre Films. All clips used in this podcast are credited entirely to them.